Why not walk with Ruth as she travels from Moab to Bethlehem, certain of her calling, yet uncertain of her future? Why not hold Naomi's hand and watch love put the pieces of her broken life back together? And why not hang out with Boaz, their kinsman redeemer who blesses both women and honors God? That's where we're headed in just a few minutes with our special guest, Liz Curtis Higgs. Hey, welcome to The Land and the Book. Our host and guide is Dr. Charlie Dyer. And I'm John Geiger. Looking forward to hanging out with you in Israel, Charlie. John, this is going to be so much fun. Anytime I'm there with you, I'm ecstatic. Well, you know, people sometimes wonder, though, as they think of Israel, they think of Scripture and the future, what is the next event on God's prophetic timeline? Why is it important, and what does it mean for you? Well, John, our friends at Life and Messiah are giving away a free ebook that addresses this issue. The Rapture, Paul's Hope and Comfort, is an engaging ebook that explores 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, and it will surely be an encouragement to any believer looking forward to the Messiah's imminent return. And receiving your free gift is easy. All you have to do is visit lifeinmessiah.org, click on the Moody Radio logo, and sign up. When you do, you'll receive this free ebook. You'll also be able to learn more there about Life in Messiah's 135-year history of sharing God's heart for the Jewish people. All right, let's swing our focus to current events for the week. During the UN Nakba Day commemoration, Palestinian President Abbas attacked Israel's connection to the land and to Jerusalem. What is Nakba Day, and what specifically did Abbas say, and what's been Israel's response? Well, John, Nakba is the Arabic word for catastrophe, and Nakba Day commemorates the establishment of the state of Israel, which the Arabs see as a catastrophe. At the event, Abbas criticized the U.S., the U.K., and the international community and questioned Israel's legitimacy as a state, even in its pre-1967 borders. He claimed that the Jewish people have no connection to the Temple Mount, and that East Jerusalem, including the Jewish quarter of the Old City and the Western Wall, is part of Palestine. Netanyahu responded by holding a special cabinet meeting at the foot of the Temple Mount by the Western Wall. He provided a historical overview of the Jewish connection to the land, especially to Jerusalem and the Temple Mount. He said, Jerusalem was Israel's capital 1,100 years before London was the capital of England, 1,800 years before Paris was the capital of France, and 2,800 years before Washington, D.C. was the capital of the U.S. He also said they were meeting at the foot of the Temple Mount where Solomon built his first Jewish temple. The cabinet then voted to approve a $16 million budget increase to upgrade the infrastructure at the Western Wall. One additional point. The Nakba narrative says Israel is a Western project to colonize the land that originally belonged to the Palestinians, and that in 1948, Israel ransacked villages, murdered innocent women and children, and expelled whoever was left. Now, that narrative is false. The Jewish claims to the land go back 4,000 years to the time of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jerusalem became their capital 3,000 years ago at the time of King David, and there's been a Jewish presence in the land throughout history they're not colonizers. In 1948, David Ben-Gurion urged the Palestinians in the surrounding Arab countries to choose peace and to remain in the land alongside the Jews. It was the Palestinian leader, Haj Amin al-Husseini, who sided with the Nazis and told Arabs everywhere to, quote, kill the Jews wherever you find them. This pleases God, history, and religion. Innocent people were killed in the fighting, and many people did lose their homes on both sides but it's wrong to lay all the blame on Israel. 
Nakba Day might indeed commemorate a catastrophe, but it's a catastrophe brought on by the Palestinian and Arab leaders. Well, Prime Minister Netanyahu has had his hands full juggling both judicial reform and rather contentious budget negotiations within his coalition. How successful has he been in resolving these two very difficult issues? Well, discussions on judicial reform got set aside temporarily until the budget was passed, which finally happened this past Wednesday. If a budget hadn't been approved by May 29, then the government automatically would have fallen and new elections would have been called. So this had to become priority number one. Everyone in the coalition knew this, but sadly, some members used it to try and blackmail the prime minister. One of the ultra-Orthodox parties demanded over 600 million shekels for religious schools and threatened to vote against the budget if his demand wasn't met. Several other small parties also made some rather outrageous demands. Now, a series of compromises were finally reached. Uh, the coalition then herded the legislation through the necessary Knesset debates and, and finally got it approved. Now, attention will begin finally to return to the judicial reform. And right now, though, John, it's not clear how that's going to get resolved. Uh, it's definitely going to be interesting to watch because that's the next process. And we'll certainly be keeping an eye on that in the weeks ahead. And you'll hear about it here on The Land and the Book. That's what you're listening to, by the way, if you just joined us. A one-hour flyover of the Middle East with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger, and in segment one, we bring you up to date on current event stories from the Middle East. Our third story, Iran's nuclear ambitions continue to concern both the U.S. and Israel. How serious is this threat, and how are Israel and the U.S. responding? Now, Iran continues to enrich uranium to ever higher levels of purity. They claim to have enriched uranium to 60%, but evidence surfaced showing they're already up to 83.7% purity, at least in some cases, and 90% purity is the threshold of weapons-grade uranium. Iran has also been expanding their underground facility at Fordo, digging ever deeper while also adding additional space there. The facility could be used to manufacture and house the centrifuges for producing high-grade uranium. Based on estimates from satellite photos, the facility is thought to be between 260 and 328 feet underground in solid rock. And a major concern is that this might be beneath the maximum effective depth of the U.S.'s bunker-busting bombs. The U.S. responded by proposing joint U.S.-Israel military planning with a focus on Iran. Now, this is an unprecedented offer from the U.S., but some in Israel are very wary about it, lest it tie their hands should the time come for action. Now, that proposal was followed this week by the U.S. releasing photos online of the bunker-busting bombs, which are so large they can only be carried by the B-2 stealth bomber. The photos revealed stenciling on the bombs that showed their weight and described the explosive mixture they contain. It seems like that information could be used by an enemy to estimate the effectiveness of the bomb against specific targets. Well, within a day, those photos were taken down. And the question is, was that a mistake? Or was it an attempt to convince either Israel or Iran that the U.S. is serious? Hmm. Or could the whole thing be an elaborate ruse, giving false information? And then the reality is, we just don't know. But what we do know is that Iran is working very hard to set up an underground site they believe can't be destroyed to produce weapons-grade uranium. And the time to stop Iran from producing it appears to be running out. A report surfaced regarding a possible land sale in the Armenian quarter that critics say will damage the Christian presence in Jerusalem. What are the specifics behind this rather disturbing headline, Charlie? 
Yeah, this is a case where everything might not be what it seems. Now, the headline states that a large portion of the Armenian quarter in the old city of Jerusalem has been sold to a Jewish developer. Now, the concern, of course, would be that this could further reduce the Christian presence in the old city. And that would be a shame, especially since the Armenians traced their presence there back to the 4th century. Now, that's when Armenia declared Christianity to be its national religion and when Armenians began making pilgrimages to Jerusalem. Now, today there are only about 1,000 Armenians living in the old city, with another 5,000 living elsewhere in the land. Uh, But here's the rest of the story. The land that was sold is about eight acres that's now being used as a parking lot inside Zion Gate. For those who've been there, when you go into Zion Gate, turn to the right, there's a large parking lot. That's the land. Now, assuming this is all the land included in the purchase, it takes up about 25% of the Armenian quarter, but it's not actually housing anything. Apparently, the developer wants to build a hotel on the site. Now, there are unconfirmed rumors that the sale could also include some of the private homes and shops in the Armenian quarter, but the specific details, well, they're not yet known. This is a case where a parking lot was sold to someone who wants to build a hotel, but what makes it so newsworthy is that it's in the old city of Jerusalem and that it involves the ongoing conflict between Israel and the Palestinians to decide who's in control. The Armenians are just the poor folks caught in the middle, and sadly, it might be that their spiritual leaders even sold them out just to make a profit on that deal. Charlie, as you and I prepare to head over to Israel, I got uh, two questions for you, because we're not the only ones going to Israel. Things people pack that they shouldn't bother with, maybe. You've done a lot of tours there. And then things we maybe don't think about packing that we should. What would fall in that category? (laughs) A lot of the stuff that people think they need, uh, you know, personal uh, hygiene products and and uh, clothes for evening activities. Uh, it's amazing how little you need by way of clothes and personal products. We just don't need as much as we think. Uh, in terms of what they don't pack, uh, electronic goods, especially like battery chargers or chargers for their cell phones, uh, those are crucial, and it's amazing how many people forget them. Well, all right. I hope we'll pack well as we head out to Israel and bring current event stories and other interviews back from that visit. I want to point our listeners to the website, thelandandthebook.org, where you can read about today's program, past programs, future programs, all at thelandandthebook.org. Walking with Ruth, that's our focus, as special guest Liz Curtis Higgs joins us right here on Moody Radio's The Land and the Book. Walk with Ruth as she travels from Moab to Bethlehem, certain of her calling, yet uncertain of her future. Hold Naomi's hand and watch love put the pieces of her broken life back together. And hang out with Boaz, their kinsman redeemer, who blesses both women and honors God big time. That's where we're going next. I'm John Geiger with a big thank you to you for hanging out with us today on The Land of the Book. Hey, let's pause briefly for some creative thoughts on reaching out to our Jewish loved ones. Here's an objection you sometimes bump into when you're sharing Christ with a Jewish friend. Why would I believe in Jesus when his followers, Christians, have persecuted Jewish people for 2,000 years? Tough question. Let's ask that of Levi Hazen, Executive Director of Life in Messiah. Well, John, this is really a historical objection that unfortunately has a lot of truth to it. Just a couple centuries after the birth of the church, Gentile believers started to far outnumber Jewish believers. Unfortunately, 
the Gentile leadership made a lot of decisions that separated the church from the Jewish roots of our faith. Mm. What started with animosity and hatred sometimes turned into outright violence. And we don't have time to explore the lengthy history of relations between the church and the Jewish community right now. But if listeners are interested in learning more, I encourage them to pick up a book by Edward Flannery called The Anguish of the Jews, 23 Centuries of Anti-Semitism. But when addressing this historical objection, I found the most important things to do are what I call the three A's. Number one, acknowledge. Okay. Acknowledge the history that it has taken place. Number two, apologize. Apologize for the terrible treatment that has taken place. There's no point in trying to defend these actions. And then number three, ask. Ask if you can share what Jesus actually did and said about the Jewish people. Jesus loved the Jewish people and willingly laid down his life for their sins. Great insights from Levi Hazen, executive director of Life in Messiah here on The Land and the Book. Liz Curtis Higgs is a popular conference speaker and the author of nearly 30 books with more than 3 million copies in print. Maybe you've read some of her best-selling nonfiction series, Bad Girls of the Bible, Really Bad Girls of the Bible, Unveiling Mary Magdalene, and Slightly Bad Girls of the Bible. Well, she's also written some award-winning Scottish historical novels inspired by the biblical book of Ruth, Here Burns My Candle and Mine is the Night. She's a New York Times bestseller. Liz and her family live in Louisville, Kentucky, and we're glad that you've joined us today, Liz. What a blessing to be with you. Thanks. Hey, what do you mean by this title you've chosen, The Girls Still Got It? What's the it? Well, she's still got something to give. I think, honestly, in the years since I've written this book, that title has come to mean even more to me, because as each year goes by, we tend to wonder, do we still have it? Did we ever have it? Have we <laughs> lost it? <laughs> and it meaning viability, being of service to people, being visible. Sometimes we feel like we become invisible, like people can't see us anymore. That can happen actually at any age. When you're a mom with young kids around you, you feel pretty invisible because they take so much attention, you feel like there is nothing left for you. Mm-hmm. And then as we mature, there's the other issue of, you know, you, you literally just feel like you're fading into the background. So one of my goals with The Girl Still Got It is to assure my readers, baby, you still got it. You still have something to offer. The world still needs what you have. As I always say, if you're still here, God has work for you to do. Hmm. Well, when I read the book of Ruth, I come away with a version of Naomi that is not just sad, but bitter angry at God. Uh, When the women of Bethlehem recognize her and they call out to her by name, she says, don't call me Naomi. Instead, call me Mara, a Hebrew word that means bitter. Uh, Naomi states emphatically, the Almighty has dealt quite bitterly with me. Well, you know, it's hard to condemn her having lost a husband and two sons. Your reaction? Yeah, for sure. Well, I always think of Naomi as the female Job of the Bible, because she does seem to have everything taken away from her, and she is miserable about it. Naomi is an interesting character to me. In some ways, the book of Ruth is almost the book of Naomi, Mm -hmm. because she goes through just as fascinating a transition, better word, transformation, 
in the process of this story. Because, yeah, she definitely loses, loses, and loses. What could be worse than being widowed and losing your sons? And understand, for that time and place, it also meant no hope of grandsons either. So it was over for Naomi. There was no one to provide for her. There was nothing that would be left to her because her, her fortune, as it were, would go on to some other male relative not for her. And so it seems like the lowest of the low. I love to watch God work when we're at our lowest point, because redemption, of course, is what the book of Ruth is all about. Our kinsman redeemer, Boaz, who kind of gives us a model of the Christ. And so um, it's fascinating to watch Naomi go from her low point. um, She has hit bottom. Mm -hmm. And then to watch God work is delightful. So by the end of it, by the end of the book of Ruth, chapter 4, Naomi is singing her daughter-in-law's praises, and all of us understand that that's a miracle yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right there. Right. And she is holding this baby in her arms, and the women of the town say, Naomi has a son. Now, we're going, no, that's not Naomi's son. That's Ruth's son and Boaz's son. But from a standpoint of, of the family name going on, Oh, that little boy is as good as her son. And so it's a delightful story. I just hope I did it justice because the book of Ruth, probably my favorite in the Bible. Mm, Mine too. Liz Curtis Higgs is a popular conference speaker and the author of some 30 books, more than 3 million in print. And she joins us today on The Land and the Book. You write, resist the urge to say you're too old, too young, too busy, too scared, too worn out, too washed up, too anything to be useful to God. Expand on that, because I think that's exactly how some of our listeners feel right at this moment, Liz. Oh, they sure do, because I do. We all do. We have moments we wake up and think, I just haven't got any more juice to squeeze out here. I'm done. And we're not done. And it's so easy to judge ourselves instead of just saying to the Lord, you have me here for a purpose. Hmm. What is it? I'm ready to serve. Just show me what it is. I guarantee you, friends, he will show you. This is how good our God is. He doesn't leave us wandering out there in the wilderness, wondering what to do next. He is with us, but we do have to seek him. Of course, the beauty of Ruth's story is this promise that she makes to Naomi, I will go where you go. I will stay where you stay. And the big one, your God will be my God. And so Ruth commits herself not just to her mother-in-law, but also to God the Father. And I think that's what he's asking of us, too, so that we know we still have more to do. And I don't mean more work to do. That sounds exhausting. (laughs) But more joy, more joy, more service, more love to share, more good news to pass around. It's all there for us, friends, but we do have to do what Ruth did and make that big-time commitment. Well, you write that the book of Ruth is a crash course in Sovereignty 101, with God whispering all through it, trust me. So let me ask you, Liz, what's the first step to taking the first step in trusting God? That's such a good question, and it is where it all begins, with trust. When you think about a little baby, um, trust is the first thing that they have to develop. Before anything else, they have to trust the person who's holding them in their arms. And we also have to trust the God who is holding us in His arms. One of the things that helps us do that is to understand His faithfulness. I went through a cancer adventure. I refuse to call it a cancer journey, a cancer adventure a few years back. And when people would say, how are you doing and how are you managing, I would always respond, 
God is so faithful. He is so worthy of our trust because I never felt alone. I never felt abandoned. I didn't even feel scared, which is weird. You ought to be scared. Oh my goodness, my life's going to end. And then you realize, oh wait, it's never the end for us. It's just a new life, an eternal life in Him. And so trust is where we all start, friends. And It's a leap of faith. You can't get around it. Just like Ruth's leap of faith to say to Naomi, I'll trust your God. She also put feet to her faith because she left her home in Moab and went with Naomi to a place she had never been. Just trusting, honestly, not Naomi, trusting God. Well, thanks for connecting with us today on The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger. Our guest is Liz Curtis Higgs, and we're talking about the wonderful story of Ruth as brought to life in her book, The Girls Still Got It. Uh, I understand that you uh, you poured over Ruth's story in 14 translations, 100 books and commentaries, uh, and you say, <laughs> I, I still get tears in my eyes when the women of Bethlehem sing out, praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. You know, I relate to that. In uh, going through Howard Hendrick's book, Living by the Book, we were asked to read the story of Ruth 30 days in a row. I never got Mm. tired of it, and I never wanted it to end. But uh, what's one thing that you still hang on to as as you ponder your time in the book of Ruth? Wow. I'm still back at you read the entire book every day. That's amazing. And it just shows the power of God's Word. It is alive. It is living. And it's fresh for us every day. What would I take away? Well, I love the fact that we have two very different women here. They're two different generations. They're two different backgrounds, one of them a believer in God, and one of them, the Moabitess, was a heathen until she was redeemed. So they're different everything, and yet God has them walk side by side. He loves them both. He cares for them both. He guides them both. He provides for them both. It's such a word to us that God is ever at work in our lives, wherever we are in our lives. Just love that book. Well, you know, again, you, you, you went through 14 translations and 100 books. I'm asking, what does your experience reading and rereading the book of Ruth and then using those other resources say to us about our approach to personal Bible study? What gems might we be missing, if only? Right. Well, I am a big proponent on different translations, so we don't get stuck on one. And uh, I actually now, as a Bible teacher, use about 60 English translations every time I do a study. And of course, the beauty of that, friends, is you don't have to own 60 Bibles. It's all online for you, easily accessed for free. And so we can look at every translation for the nuance. I also look at the Hebrew in the case of the book of Ruth, because I want to, and you're going to say, Liz, do you read Hebrew? Not at all, friends. You'll never hear the words come out of my mouth. But again, available online, easy to look at the original language, and then you look at the translations, and you're saying, oh, but I'm not a scholar. Friends, we don't need to be scholars. We just need to be students of Mm. the Word. I love, love to go deep, because it is alive, it is so rich, it is so timeless, it never disappoints. The Word of God is like manna. It is like living water. 
in case you can't tell, I am very excited about the Bible because it was critical for me 41 years ago when I was as lost and as bad a bad girl as a girl could be. That's why I write about the bad girls. I have the credentials. <laughs> and you're saying, well, Ruth and Naomi weren't bad girls. Um, no, but they weren't perfect either. And thank goodness. I can't relate to somebody who's perfect. Give me a real woman. Okay, now I can learn from them. That's certainly where Ruth and Naomi are. In the book, you tell the story about you and your husband. When you reach any destination, having used the GPS, the voice announces, you have arrived. You say you always laugh (laughs) because she sounds happy about it, but also because you know better. Spiritually speaking, we're not there yet. God is still working on us. My question, why do we so quickly lose track of that critical reality? One of the things that I love is the awareness of walking with God on a daily basis, which means, no, we're not at the destination yet, but we're walking. We are moving forward. Chuck Swindoll wrote a book called Three Steps Forward, Two Steps Back, and I always thought that was the perfect description of our Christian walk. But notice that you do end one step forward. And that's where we are, friends. We're just walking. What's lovely is God knows this about us. This is not a surprise to him. He is not wringing his hands or rolling his eyes or saying, why aren't these people walking faster? We go at the rate he calls us to walk, and then he knows each of us individually and what we can handle. A proof of that is watching Jesus with the disciples, or as I like to call them, the disciples, because <laughs> bless them, they stumbled and fell, and yet Jesus was so patient with them. This is how he is with us. He is so patient, knowing that the time will come when it'll all click into place. I personally think that isn't going to happen until we stand in his presence. But in the meantime, this faithful God, this patient God is walking with us. That's Liz Curtis Higgs. Her book, The Girl Still Got It. A link to Liz's website is at ours, thelandandthebook.org. We've got to connect again. Will you do it? Absolutely. Thanks so much for your time today. Thank you, Liz. Hey, it's time for Questions and Answers with Charlie Dyer. That's next on The Land and the Book. For a whole lot of people, this is the segment, their favorite on The Land and the Book. I'm John Gager with our host, Charlie Dyer. Why do you think we're so curious, Charlie, about what God has for us in scriptures. Well, I think, you know, we're naturally curious people, and especially when it comes to God, we want to know what he said. And sometimes uh, we don't fully understand his word. So I love it that people can ask questions and we can help, hopefully, help them understand the word of God better and bring them to God that way. And before we get to our very first listener question, here's one for us to ponder. What's the next event on God's prophetic timeline? Why is it important and what does it mean for us? Well, our friends at Life and Messiah are giving away a free ebook that addresses that very issue. The Rapture, Paul's Hope and Comfort, is an engaging ebook that explores 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 and that will be an encouragement to any believer looking forward to the Messiah's imminent return. Receiving your free gift is easy. All you have to do is visit lifeinmessiah.org, click on the Moody Radio logo, and sign up. When you do, you'll receive this free ebook. You'll also be able to learn more there about Life in Messiah's 135-year history of sharing God's heart for the Jewish people. All right, let's start with question one in today's Q&A segment from Chuck. He says, is Mount Moriah of Genesis 22 
the same location as Mount Calvary where Jesus was crucified? If so, what is the spiritual significance? Also, is the place where Jesus ascended into heaven on the Mount of Olives the same spot that he will return to at his second coming after the tribulation? And will there be a temple in that location? Well, Mount Moriah in Genesis 22 is the same location as the place where David purchased the threshing floor of Araunah the Jebusite, and that's where Solomon built the temple. The location of the garden tomb is on the northern edge of this ridge. However, I personally believe the best historical and archaeological evidence points to the location where the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is as being the site of the crucifixion and burial. So as a result, I don't see any spiritual connection between that site and Mount Moriah. Now, in relation to the Mount of Olives, I do believe the spot where Jesus ascended to heaven is where he'll return. Maybe not the exact physical footprint, that one by one square foot area. Uh, We don't know that exact spot, but it's not a real large location, the Mount of Olives. And Zechariah 14 suggests that the Mount of Olives is the spot, you know, just to the east of where the original city of Jerusalem stood. And that's where his feet are going to touch down. Terry says the book of Revelation talks about the restrainer being taken out before the tribulation begins. If the restrainer is the Holy Spirit, won't those being saved during the tribulation be filled with the Holy Spirit as we are now? Yeah, that passage actually is from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. You know, Paul wrote, uh, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he's removed. And I believe the Holy Spirit is the one restraining, but this doesn't mean the Holy Spirit will be absent during the tribulation period. Rather, his current work of restraining evil will cease. As bad as the world is now, it will become much worse when his restraining influence is removed. However, the good news is that the work of the Holy Spirit in helping people to salvation and in indwelling believers, well, that's going to continue. Now, I say that because in Joel 2, 28 to 29, Joel describes God's outpouring of his spirit on the Jewish believers during the day of the Lord, that coming future day. And the Holy Spirit, he says, will be active, but he will also allow Satan and the Antichrist to work to promote evil during that time. Jennifer says, do you have a good recommendation for a training course in how to evangelize unbelievers or share your testimony? Well, yeah, first uh, I'd suggest uh, looking at the classic book by Paul Little. It's titled, How to Give Away Your Faith. Uh, The book's helpful for both individuals and groups. In fact, I first read it in Bible college. Uh, Second, I can recommend Evangelism Explosion by D. James Kennedy. What I like about that book is it provides a very structured but simple outline that someone can learn that will allow them to share their faith with confidence. Now, there are some other great resources available, but these two have been around for a long time and they've proven to be very helpful. It's The Land and the Book from Moody Radio with our host, Charlie Dyer, systematically answering each and every question that comes in. Yours is welcome, by the way, at thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Robert wants to know, in his commentary on the Minor Prophets, F.J. Dalich states that the collection of the prophetic writings of the canon of the Old Testament was complete less than a generation after the death of Zechariah. I'm curious how the rabbis knew which scrolls to collect at that time and what records they left of how they chose the correct scrolls. I thought the selection of the Hebrew canon didn't take place until much later. Yeah, I would say Malachi was written yeah, between 433 and 424 B.C., so the close of the Old Testament canon was probably a little more than a generation after Zechariah, since Malachi was about 90 years after Zechariah penned his work. But to answer your question, I believe people recognize the unique nature of these writings from the very time they were written. 
The entire Old Testament canon was then collected shortly after the writing of the book of Malachi, probably no later than 400 B.C. Uh, The clearest record we have on the acceptance of the canon actually comes from Josephus. Uh, He wrote, and I'll quote him here, And how firmly we have given credit to those books of our own nation is evident by what we do, for during so many ages as have already passed, no one has been so bold as either to add anything to them or take anything from them or to make any changes in them. But it becomes natural to all Jews immediately and from their very birth to esteem those books to contain certain divine doctrines. Now, Josephus also identified the books of Scripture, and they correspond to all 39 books in our current Old Testament. Now, I don't know of any detailed record that was left indicating how they selected these books, but it does seem as if the individual books were recognized by the people at the time of writing as being divine and that the final collection took place shortly after the last book was written, sometime after the return of the people from captivity in Babylon. Stephen's question centers around a statement from St. Bernard he read and wants to know if you believe it's correct. Here's the statement. The least drop of the blood of Christ would have sufficed for the redemption of us all, and Christ could have shed that one drop without dying. Therefore, even without dying, he could, by some kind of suffering, if it had been divinely appointed, have redeemed all mankind because of the infinite worth of his person. Could that statement be correct? Yeah, and in this case, I have to disagree with the statement. While it's true that we've been redeemed through the blood of Christ, as Paul clearly says you know, in Romans chapter 3, verse 25, and uh, Ephesians chapter 1, but it's more than just the fact that there was some special power in the blood itself. It was the sacrificial shedding of that blood on the cross that atoned for our sins. Now, Hebrews 9, uh, 26 says, Christ put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. In 1 Peter three eighteen, Peter said that Christ died for our sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. And Paul says something similar. Galatians 1, 4, he wrote, Christ gave himself for our sins that he might rescue us from the present evil age. Uh, in fact, if, if I could go on, the, the clearest example to me is 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says there the essence of the gospel is that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Now, the life of the flesh is in the blood. Leviticus 17 tells us that. Christ's shedding of his blood served as a visible reminder that he died to pay the penalty for our sin. You know, a simple cut or prick uh, that would bring blood wasn't sufficient death itself was required and the shedding of his blood resulted in death and that's the penalty Jesus paid to redeem us. Eugene takes us to 1 Corinthians 15 verses 22 through 28. He says Paul seems to go beyond the millennium in the passage saying Christ will surrender the kingdom to the Father and subject himself to the Father and then God will be all in all. Is this some new phase of his great plan? Does the end of the millennium signify the end of time? Clearly, time is still being measured during the millennium. I wonder how the end of that will affect our individual personal existence. The statement that God will then be all in all sounds like our existence will be lifted up to a whole new level. What do you think? Well, in that chapter, I see Paul providing a broad sweep of the future. I do believe he goes beyond the millennial kingdom. So uh, in verse 23, he moves from the resurrection of Jesus as the first fruits to our resurrection when he comes for the church. And then he alludes to the kingdom in verse 24, which I take to be the millennial kingdom. And then he says, Christ will hand it all over to the Father once he's abolished all rule and authority and power. And he explains that in verse 25. It's the time when all enemies will be vanquished. Now, theologically, I think Paul there is uh, looking all the way to the end of the book of Revelation when Jesus defeats Satan in his final rebellion on earth and throws Satan into the lake of fire and judges all unsaved humanity at the great white throne judgment. And at that point, 
all enemies to God's ultimate eternal rule will have been vanquished. The Son then hands over rule to the Father, and the eternal reign of the triune God will be back as it was in eternity past. Now, I think we need to admit, we, we don't fully understand what the eternal phase will be like. You know, we have broad hints in the book of Revelation, as John describes the new Jerusalem. You know, we know we're going to be there, that sin, death, suffering, rebellion are going to be gone forever. But right now, I think it's beyond our ability to truly grasp what it's going to be like to be in God's presence for eternity. So I have to say, I believe what the book of Revelation describes, but when we get there, we're going to realize it was much more than we could have ever begun to imagine or think. And that's why I think Paul paints in such broad brushstrokes in 1 Corinthians 15, and that's about where I think we need to leave it for now. All right, Charlie, thank you very much. Boy, so many questions, good questions, and we've covered a lot of ground, enough that you might be saying, I I need to process a little of this just a bit more. You can do that when you hear the program again, easy to do when you download the podcast at thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Well, still to come, one more segment. It's Charlie Dyer's devotional. He takes us to a place in the Holy Land, a passage in Scripture, and welds them together. That's coming up next. Some months ago, the nation was captivated by the story of a revival in Asbury Seminary down in Kentucky. Uh, You know, you saw the stories online, maybe on television. There were people from across the country who gathered, people who came from across the world to see what was going on. I remember reading stories, you know, in the mainstream media online. But Charlie, uh, that's a hint of what we're talking about in just a couple of minutes uh, with regard to your devotion, or are you going in a different direction? No, that's pretty much it, John. We're going to be heading to a revival that took place a long time ago in the Bible. Okay, that's a fascinating conversation and a timely one in light of what happened at Asbury. We'll get to that after we hear this brief testimony from a fellow Israel traveler. Let's check this out. Years ago, I had the opportunity to visit the Holy Land. I probably have never in my life had such a passion to do something like go to the Holy Land. And my dream came true. And I remember that Tiberius on the Sea of Galilee, when I read God's Word and I read the word Tiberius, my mind picture is fixed with what that area looks like. And to look at the Sea of Galilee, to uh, see the um, Garden of Gethsemane, I will never read God's Word the same. It has made such an impact on my life. And when I read God's Word, it is just like a vivid picture, fixed forever in my mind. Charlie, the word revival is on so many hearts and minds and lips. We pray for revival. We experienced that Asbury revival a while back. But your devotional today takes that thought one step further. We're looking forward to this. Oh, thanks, John. Yeah, this weekend is Shavuot, or as it's known to Christians, Pentecost. The festival originally commemorated the beginning of the wheat harvest, but it also came to commemorate the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. And of course, for Christians, it points to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. Now, I titled today's devotional, A Pentecostal Revival. To some, that might conjure up images of holiness churches or camp meetings or church revivals, but that's not what I have in mind. Instead, I want you to come with me to Jerusalem during a rather obscure period in history. It's 896 B.C. 
just 35 years after the death of Solomon and the breakup of his kingdom into two nations. King Asa has been ruling over Judah for 15 years. After several years of relative peace, Asa and Judah are now threatened by an invading army of Cushite warriors, likely sent by Pharaoh of Egypt. Many are still alive who remember Pharaoh Shishak's earlier invasion and plundering of the land at the time of Asa's grandfather, King Rehoboam. Asa gathers his forces to try to stop this latest threat. He leads his army 24 miles southwest to the city of Merishah, guarding a key valley in the low foothills of Judah. As Asa faces the enemy, he demonstrates his spiritual sensitivity by calling on the name of the Lord for protection. Lord, there is no one like you to help the powerless against the mighty. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rely on you, and in your name we have come against this vast army. O Lord, you are our God. Do not let man prevail against you. And as the writer of Chronicles notes, God responded to Asa's heartfelt prayer. The Lord struck down the Cushites before Asa and Judah. God gave Judah a great military victory. And yet one danger during times of great success is the tendency to begin trusting in our own ability and to take our eyes off the Lord. To prevent that from happening, God raised up a prophet, Azariah, son of Oded. This prophet is only mentioned one time in the Bible, in 2 Chronicles 15. But his walk-on role, though brief, is vitally important. Listen to me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you when you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. Azariah reminded Asa and Judah of the difficult times they had faced in the past, likely referring back to the time of the judges. It was a time of distress when Israel was without the true God, without a priest to teach, and without the law. The prophet then called on Asa and Judah to continue responding positively to the Lord. But as for you, be strong and do not give up, for your work will be rewarded. Asa, you've made a good start in trying to serve the Lord, but don't stop now. You've seen how I can bring victory, so stay faithful and keep going. Asa took God's message to heart and expanded his program of religious reform. And that brings us to this weekend and to the festival of Shavuot or Pentecost. Asa called an assembly of all Judah and Benjamin and the people from Ephraim, Manasseh, and Simeon who had settled among them. And when did this take place? They assembled at Jerusalem in the third month of the 15th year of Asa's reign. Well, the 15th year of his reign was 896 B.C., and the third month is the month in which the festival of Shavuot was to be held, one of the three festivals for which God had commanded all Israelite males to gather before him. It's almost certain the assembly called by Asa coincided with the feast of Shavuot or Pentecost. And during this gathering, the nation recommitted itself to the Lord, or as Second Chronicles 15:12 puts it, they entered into a covenant to seek the Lord, the God of their fathers, with all their heart and soul. And they didn't simply mouth these words in some half-hearted manner. The writer continues, All Judah rejoiced about the oath because they had sworn it wholeheartedly. They sought God eagerly, and he was found by them. So the Lord gave them rest on every side. This was a genuine Pentecostal or Shavuot revival. King Asa applied the spirit of revival personally to his own royal family. He deposed his grandmother Ma'akah from her position as queen mother because she had made a repulsive Asherah pole. Asa cut the pole down, broke it up, and burned it in the Kidron Valley. 
he personally removed the symbols of royal idolatry that seemed to have lent an air of respectability to what he knew were godless practices. The compiler of Second Chronicles gives a clear-eyed perspective on the revival of Asa, including the fact that he wasn't able to completely rid the land of all pagan practices. For example, he wasn't able to remove the high places from throughout the land. Nevertheless, the writer makes it clear that Asa took his responsibility to serve the Lord seriously. Asa's heart was blameless all his days. Or as another translation renders it, Asa's heart was fully committed to the Lord all his life. This public gathering and revival wasn't some one-and-done event that Asa could mark off on the calendar and then forget. It was a point of decision and commitment where he chose to make the remainder of his life count for the Lord. This is where a friend of mine would say, well, that was then, but this is now. What lesson can we glean from King Asa and this Pentecostal revival that took place almost 3,000 years ago? I believe the answer to that is found in Azariah the prophet's words to Asa. The Lord is with you when you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. Azariah reminded Asa that the key was to seek God, search out someone to teach God's word, and then endeavor to conform his life to the truth God revealed in that word. The time of trouble came when Israel was without the true God, without a priest to teach, and without the law. I see the same principle repeated in Paul's words to the Romans. Having given the church in Rome a graduate-level course on theology in Romans 1-11, to Paul then begins in chapter 12 stressing the importance of moving that truth from their heads to their hearts and then down to their hands and feet. Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. This weekend, focus on the day of Pentecost as a time when God wants his people to appear before him. King Asa understood, and he decided to commit his life and that of his family and that of the nation he ruled to the Lord. And it made a profound difference in the entire kingdom of Judah. God also wants you to offer your life in an act of spiritual worship. This is the time to choose to stop conforming to the pattern of this world and instead allow God's Word and His Holy Spirit to transform your heart and mind. When you do, you will discover God's presence and His plan for your life. Or, as Azariah said to Asa, the Lord is with you when you are with Him. If you seek Him, He will be found by you. Charlie, I'm so grateful that your devotional points out the fact that revival isn't something that's sort of out there that happens to quote others. Revival begins with me. It's in my heart, my soul. And uh, it's a very personal thing in that regard. You're exactly right, John. And I think if you want to hear today's devotional again, and it's important maybe that you do, check out the website, thelandandthebook.org. That's thelandandthebook.org where you can hear this program or any of our past programs again at your convenience and share them with a friend as well. Well, our time is gone, but we want to thank our host, Charlie Dyer, Dan Anderson, our producer. I'm John Gager. The Land and the Book is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.